You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Uh, well, we are continuing our series in the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, we're in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26 today. Actually, the very end of verse 18 is where we'll start. Uh, so if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way there. Page 980 is where you can find that text in uh, the black hardcover Bibles there under your seat. I've known uh, of these verses. I've read these verses many times in my life before. Uh, but I have found renewed appreciation for what Paul writes in this text. Uh, the past couple years, and I'm sure you would agree with this, the past couple years have been characterized by a lot of chaos and a lot of anxiety. Uh, a pandemic globally and the varying responses to it have led to what can feel like pressure, immense pressure all the time to make frantic decisions amid competing voices. So these last couple years have been characterized by a lot of fear, by a lot of fear, fear of dying or a loved one of yours dying, fear of losing control, fear of setting precedence as a society that we don't want to set. And just in case we needed a reminder that there's always going to be some kind of chaos swirling around us, just as COVID cases are subsiding and mandates are beginning to lift, this week, Russia invades Ukraine, and now we're in the middle of and on the verge of a global conflict. There's always something to fear, is there not? There's always some kind of frenzy to be whipped into. And yet, in Philippians chapter 1, here's Paul, imprisoned in Rome, and he's calm, and he's content. He's about to stand trial before Caesar, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And some of his fellow Christians have abandoned him. And others haven't just abandoned him. They've turned on him. They're, they're preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. They're trying to draw people away from Paul and to themselves. They're trying to afflict Paul, rubbing salt into his wounds. So how's Paul doing in this low moment of his life? What could be a low moment? How's he holding up? He's rejoicing. He's rejoicing. He still very much cares about people. He hasn't become calloused or detached. But he isn't being whipped into a frenzy by all that's going on around him either. Why? How? How is that possible for Paul? It's because he actually believes the gospel he proclaims. He actually believes it. I think this text is going to expose some things in us. It certainly has in me. And is continuing to do that. This is the kind of text that exposes the difference between our doctrinal beliefs, the things that we say are true as Christians, and our functional beliefs. You know, as Christians, as those who trust in Jesus, do, do we actually live in light of these truths that we say we believe? Looking at Paul's words and example, let's ask even now the Holy Spirit to examine us, to expose those gaps in our hearts this morning between what we say we believe and what we actually believe. So let me pray for us to that end and then we'll jump into Philippians chapter one. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would pour out upon us wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds 
would be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Search us, know us, examine and expose us this morning, Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Philippians chapter 1, beginning there at the very end of verse 18 and reading through verse 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain." If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. In these verses, Paul is considering what life or death would mean for him as well as for the Philippians. So let's walk through this text this morning in four parts. Let's first talk about the options. Second, about the better option, third, the necessary option, and fourth, the only option. So the options, the better option, the necessary option, and the only option. So first, let's talk about the options. And look there again at verse 19. Paul writes, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. And at first glance, it sounds like Paul has a ton of confidence that his upcoming trial before Caesar is going to lead to his exoneration and his freedom, that he's going to be delivered from captivity and able to continue on in his ministry, his global missionary work. But the word that Paul actually uses here for deliverance is a word that also means salvation. I know that this will turn out for my salvation. Kind of changes the meaning of that phrase, doesn't it? And for years, Bible scholars have wrestled with and debated about which specific meaning Paul intended when he wrote the word delivered and deliverance here. Considering the different perspectives, I think perhaps Paul was being purposefully ambiguous. In this one word, he is laying out the potential outcomes. He's laying out the options. And as an encouragement to both himself and to the Philippians, he's saying, one way or another, I'm about to be delivered. It's just a matter of how. It's just a matter of how. If you're a a parent, have you ever um, given your kid a choice that leads to the same result? You give them some options, you give them a choice, but it leads to the same result. So for example, it's time to go to bed in the evening, and you know that if you just tell your kid, time to go to bed, it's going to be a battle. So you decide instead, I'm going to give them a choice. And you say something like, would you like me to carry you upstairs? Or would you like to walk upstairs? Either way, you're going upstairs, but you can have a choice in how you get there. Now, now I've heard this doesn't work as well as your kids become teenagers. I've heard there's a shelf life 
to this tactic. It's going to catch up to me at some point. It still works right now, but it's not exactly the same, but Paul has realized the end of his imprisonment is deliverance. Deliverance is the guaranteed result for Paul. It's either going to be temporal deliverance, freedom from his chains in Rome, or it will be his execution, his physical death, but therefore his eternal deliverance, his full experience of salvation. And with either option, with either type of deliverance, verse 20, Jesus will be honored. He will be honored if Paul goes on living. He will be honored if Paul dies. Tell you what, that's what freedom looks like. That's what freedom looks like. That's what peace and contentment look like. Do you know why Paul can write the way he does and talk about rejoicing so much in this letter? This is why. It's because he has realized, I can't lose. I can't lose. One way or another, this is headed for my deliverance. Now, this doesn't remove the, the tension of having a preference of desiring it to go one way over the other. We're going to see that a little more in just a second. But it does take the anxiety and the pressure and the paralyzing fear out of the equation as he realizes it. Have you ever wrestled really deeply over the options that are laying out in front of you? Maybe with a career choice, for example. Maybe with that big question, what should I do with my life? Some of you are are maybe in that season right now or back in that season right now. Well, this would be a little bit like someone guaranteeing you that you make it. Hey, you know what? Either way, you're going to have, that's going to be a fulfilling way for you to live out your working years. Either way, you're going to be able to provide for yourself and your family. If that were the case, if someone guaranteed that to you, you'd still weigh the options. You'd still most likely have a preference and maybe even be more free to, to have a preference. But Would that not just open a massive pressure relief valve if someone were to guarantee that either way it's going to be okay? Hey, deep breath. This turns out okay. With Paul, it's not a career. It's literally life or death. Those are the options that Paul is facing. As finite human beings living these vapor of lives that we live, this is the thing that creates the most anxiety and the most pressure. But Paul has realized here, all the pressure's been relieved. Either option means deliverance. Either option means honor for Jesus. And so Paul can say with all sincerity, I welcome either one. I welcome either option. In this freedom and this peace, however, Paul does feel a tension. Maybe you heard that as we read it. He says there in verse 23 that he is hard-pressed between the options of life and death. But he does have a preference. So let's spend some time looking more closely at what he calls the better option. The better option. Look there again at the second half of verse 23. Paul writes, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far what? Better. Better. That's not how most of us think, is it? That's not how most of us think, especially if we're relatively healthy, if we're relatively young. Most of us don't desire death or see death as the better option. Why does Paul? Why does Paul? Because Paul actually believes the gospel he's been running around the world proclaiming. The good news of Jesus Christ, he actually believes it. He believes that when God created us, death wasn't part of that original equation. Death 
is not natural, though it feels so natural to us. Death is unnatural. Death is the intruder. And as Paul knows and writes about elsewhere, it's our fault. Death is a consequence of sin. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, Paul doesn't desire death as if it were some kind of circle of life, pantheistic, you know, it's just my time to return to the earth and feed the rest. It's not that at all. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is the last enemy. It's his enemy. So why does he desire it? Why does he call it the better option? Because the story of the world doesn't end with sin and death. Jesus took on flesh, Hebrews chapter 2, so that he might taste death for everyone. See, death is our enemy, but it is so much more the enemy of Jesus, the author of life, the one who created the world and created it good. When Jesus stood outside his friend Lazarus's tomb in John chapter 11 and wept, he also got angry. He got angry. Why? Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're not meant to have to say goodbye to the people we love. We're not meant to have to wrestle through the grief and the pain of death, but we do because of sin. But unlike us, Jesus can actually do something about that. And so in that very same chapter, John chapter 11, Jesus says to his friend Martha, Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So Jesus is the resurrection and the life. On the cross, he tastes death for everyone. But rising from the dead, he defeats death. He overcomes death. Not that we, as you well know, are completely free of it. Not yet. As we're going to remember this week on Ash Wednesday, we still return to the dust. Our lives are still, at best, 70 or 80 years and soon gone. But because Jesus died and rose again, the sting of death is gone. It no longer means separation from God. Anyone who trusts in Jesus, who trusts in Jesus' work, though he die, yet shall he live. We will experience our own resurrection. And at the consummation of Jesus' kingdom, when he makes all things new, Revelation 21, death shall be no more. Death itself dies in the end. See, of the many broken things that Jesus redeems, one of the most incredible is that he redeems our own experience of death. He redeems our experience of death. In rendering death eternally powerless, he has made death into, you heard Jordan call it a doorway before. He's made, he's made, it, a, he's made it into a doorway. I would also say he's made it into a vehicle. For the one who trusts in Jesus, that's the only power death has left. Think about this. To more rapidly transport you into the fullness of Jesus' presence and the beginning of an eternity where death is no more. It's an expediting vehicle. For the one who trusts in Christ, that's the only power death has left. That's why Paul desires it. That's why he calls it the better option. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, as we even got to celebrate once this morning, we'll get to celebrate it again right now, Paul stares death in the eyes and he says, where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? Is this all you've got? Is that the only power you've got left? Well, thanks be to God, because he's given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's a gospel-shaped perspective on death. And God bless him, Paul actually believes it. Just like we should. He actually believes it. He's completely at peace if that's where this is going. In fact, it's his preference. It's his desire. So how about us? How about us? Do we believe that death is gain? Do you believe that this morning? Many of us believe this as a doctrine. We would believe this as a, as a true statement. And many of us would rightly take comfort at this truth when, for example, we're at the funeral of someone we love. But do we actually function in our day-to-day lives as if death is gain? I don't, if I'm honest with you. Many days I'm far too attached to this life. There's a lot that I like about my life. There's a lot of people I like in my life. I would be really sad to say goodbye to a lot of what my life has been. And there's something very right about receiving things in this life as good gifts from God and rejoicing in them. But not if we've begun to think that those gifts are better than the giver. Not if we start to act like it's possible to create a life here that's better than eternal life with Jesus. For the one who trusts in Jesus, think about this, this life is as bad as it gets. For the one who trusts in Jesus, this life is as close to hell as you will ever experience. And if you're not perpetually aware of that, it's probably because in one way or another, you've got your head in the sand. It's probably because you've closed your eyes and you've closed your heart and you've closed your hands to people who are hurting and people who are suffering immensely. See, people who have hard lives, who suffer perpetually, they don't struggle with this truth of death being gain nearly as much. Nearly as much. It's why, it's one of many reasons why we should run toward people who are hurting and suffering and not away from them. Their lives remind us of what's actually true. Their lives remind us that there's nothing in this life that can compare to eternity with Jesus. Not just a doctrinal statement that we check the box on, but what's true in real life. If you, this morning, don't desire to depart and be with Jesus the way that Paul is speaking of here, let that wake you up. There's a gap between the gospel you might proclaim and the gospel you live in light of. It, It means, at the end of the day, ultimately, you don't actually believe death is gain. And that can surface then in your life in any number of ways. You can be way too controlled by fear. You can avoid the kinds of costly obedience Jesus will call you to in relationships and in service and in generosity and in mission and on and on. We must never cling to this life and the comforts of this life and the stuff of this life that tightly. To be with Jesus is better by far. Death really is gain. Though that is the better option, as Paul calls it, it's still not an easy choice for Paul because it's not just about what's better, it's about what's necessary. So next, let's talk about the necessary option. Verse 24, Paul writes, but to remain in the flesh is more what? necessary on your account. See, if it were just about Paul and Jesus, there'd be no tension between these options. He's convinced, as we should be, that this life, corrupted and fractured by sin as it is, this life is as bad as it gets. But it's not just about Paul and Jesus, is it? It's never just about me and Jesus or you 
and Jesus. Jesus calls us into a people, and he sends us out to a people. When Jesus rescues us, when we come to see our desperate need for him, and we come to see the beauty and worth of what he's done, he reorients our lives completely so that our lives become all about his honor, his glory, and the good of others, and the good of others. That's a harder life, is it not? A life devoted to service instead of being devoted to self. But I would invite you to consider this morning, if it's actually better by far to depart and be with Jesus, and it is, then this is the only kind of life worth sticking around for. This is the only kind of life worth sticking around for, one for the honor of Jesus and the joy and progress of others. What does it mean when Paul writes here, to live is Christ? To live is Christ. I think it's a combination of what he writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and Galatians chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians 5, he writes, Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. It's a joyful experience of being this new creation. It's recognizing our union with Jesus. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. But it's also Galatians chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've died to myself. So I like how one author, one commentator put this together. He wrote that to live as Christ means, quote, the joyous embrace of the burdens of the cross of Christ. The joyous embrace of the burdens of the cross of Christ. So to live as Christ is not being naive. You, you know this life of following him is death to self and a life of carrying your cross. And it's not triumphalism. It's not pretending that things are not still massively broken and wrong in this world because of sin. But it is actually stepping into your life in Christ, your union with him. And it means, verse 22, that there's fruitful labor for you and I to do. There's work for you to do that matters. And there's fruit. There are things of eternal consequence that come as a result of that work that you and I do. So now you see maybe why there's real tension between these options for Paul. To go on living is not necessary for his sake. It is, though, for the Philippians, for theirs, for their joy and their progress in the faith. And Paul could have just as easily written these words to any other number of churches that he planted and places that he visited. He could have written this to the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Colossians and the Corinthians and the Romans. He could have written it to any of them. This kind of life that Paul's describing here takes incredible courage. It, it takes courage to die for Christ, but it takes courage just as much, and I would argue at times even more, to live for Christ, to remain in the flesh, as Paul says here. Think about Paul in this moment that he's writing these words. What takes more courage for Paul? The guy has already had an unbelievably eventful, unbelievably fruitful life. He's been used by God to spread the gospel all over the Mediterranean. He's made it to Rome, which was part of his ambition to proclaim the name of Jesus where it had never been proclaimed before. If being with Jesus is far better, and you're an imprisoned, aging Paul who's suffered, who's been tortured, who's been nearly killed on multiple occasions— you really have to believe there's a kind of life worth living to press on in that. To not just go to your trial before Caesar, curse Caesar, 
get executed and be gone. You have to actually believe there's something worth pressing on for. It often takes more courage to remain than to depart. If you're pursuing this kind of life, this faithful, fruitful life for Jesus' honor and for the good of others, it takes more courage to live on than to die. So men and women, will you live this kind of life? Will you live this kind of life? Do you have this perspective on the value and the purpose of your life? And do you see with Paul that the reason to press on living is not for your own sake, but it's actually for the sake of others? The purpose of our lives is not to live as long as we possibly can. It is not to accumulate as much stuff or even as many experiences and memories as we possibly can. It's not to leave our mark on history. There can be good things in all of that, but all of that ultimately has way too much self in it. Learn to believe that to live is Christ. Since it is better to depart, better to depart and be with Jesus, step more and more into the only kind of life worth remaining here for, worth living. Which leads to our fourth and final point this morning, the only option, the only option. Paul here in these words talks about life and death as if it's a choice. Verse 22, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. But it's not really Paul's choice, is it? It's not really Paul's choice. It's not up to Paul whether deliverance in this moment will mean freedom from imprisonment or death. Now, he's having a Holy Spirit-inspired moment writing this letter. And it would seem, especially by the time he reaches verses 25 and 26, that the Holy Spirit has assured him this is not the end of his earthly life. He's confident, as he writes there, that he's going to get out of Rome, he's going to get out of his imprisonment, and he's going to be able to visit the Philippians in person again. But I bring this up because when it comes to life and death, we are very limited in our choices. We're very, are we not? We're very limited. We don't get to determine the length of our lives. I mean, I don't know about you, but God did not consult me about that choice this morning when I woke up. He didn't say, would you like to go on living one more day? Or would you like to depart? I did not have to wrestle with that today. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful that's not my choice. Because if I were thinking with the clarity that Paul is writing with here, I would be hard-pressed every single day. I'd be, in some days, coming apart at the seams because of the tension of that choice. You know those um, stories and movies where one choice leads to these completely different futures, these alternate realities? A couple movies that came to mind were Sliding Doors and The Butterfly Effect. Probably dating myself on both of those a little bit, but those are two. Some people really like those stories because of the possibilities of what might be or what could have been. You know, if I'd gotten on this train instead of that train, or if I'd done this instead of that, those stories just stress me out so much. I just get stressed watching stories like that. I don't want that kind of future-shaping responsibility. I don't want it. And if I do have it, I would rather just not know. I would rather not know. So I'm grateful that in his kindness, God has made it so much simpler, so much more freeing. We do not determine the length of our lives. And therefore, the only option is to live each day in pursuit of honoring Christ. That's our option. To live each day in pursuit of honoring Christ. There was a moment in Jesus' earthly life 
where he became resolutely fixed on his purpose. In Luke chapter nine, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's a reference to the book of Isaiah. Set his face like flint, hardened. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross. That was, of course, why he had always come. That's why he came into the world in the first place. But here was a different kind of intensity and intentionality, and the disciples saw it. They saw it. He was going to Jerusalem to die and rise again. He was going to secure eternal deliverance for all who put their faith in him. And so he set his face. He fixed his eyes. He made it his only option. That's the kind of choice you and I get to make each day. Where will we fix our eyes? Will we become preoccupied with the length of our lives? Will we make ourselves the focal point of life and busy ourselves accumulating experiences and stuff. Because Jesus set his face for your salvation, fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on him. Because Jesus died and lives again, you are free in life and in death. You can press on in the face of either of those things. You can die every single day, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. You can die to self to a self-focused life. You can die to treasuring the gifts more than the giver. And you can also live every single day for Jesus' honor, for the joy and the progress of other people. So fix your eyes on Jesus today. Live in pursuit of honoring Jesus today. Whatever today holds and however many todays you have left, If you fix your eyes on Jesus, this is what Paul's saying in Philippians 1, if you fix your eyes on Jesus, you cannot lose. You cannot lose. Your deliverance is sure. Christ will be honored whether you live on or whether you die. And to you, to live will be Christ and to die will be gain. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us strength to live out this message that we have heard today. We confess that to us, in many moments of our lives, death does not seem like gain. And we don't see that the only kind of life worth pressing on to live is a life for your honor and for the joy and progress of others. So forgive us for that. Renew our perspective this morning. Help us to actually believe in every moment of our lives the gospel we proclaim. And as we prepare to come to this table as we prepare to look again and feast again on your finished work, that you died and rose again, remind us that that means that we're free to live or die. We can press on in the face of either. Help us to believe all of the implications of your death and resurrection for us. And we look to you now and we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.